1: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. An American Tale the Musical makes its world premiere tonight at Children's Theatre Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as Fivel goes Midwest. I spoke to Tony-winning playwright Itamar Moses about adapting the iconic Don Bluth film, as well as memories of The Band's Visit winning 10 Tonys on Broadway, including Best Musical. Edamar, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, it's my pleasure.
1: Now, we said you're premiering there at the CTC in, in Minneapolis. Will there be, you know, are there plans to eventually come here to to the D.C. area? You know, I'm trying to find a local angle, but if not, it's OK. It's still a world premiere breaking news.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, especially with a musical and most especially with a musical based on such a sort of well-known and beloved film. Uh, yes, there are certainly ambitions for it to move beyond Minneapolis, to go to other cities and including, you know, a major theater city and and a major uh, city for, you know, America's tradition of, you know, politics and uh, uh, immigration, uh, D.C. would be the perfect place to uh, to do this show. So nothing is set in stone or quite certain, but that's certainly our intention is to to take it everywhere.
1: So you would like to bring it to D.C. with the theater community. And like you're saying, the politics, immigration, all the themes of it would be perfect for our town. So
0: absolutely. D.C. is a great theater town. It really is.
1: Oh, it really, really is. A lot of people forget, you know, like West Side Story started at National Theater before Broadway. And I think right. Les Miz played Kennedy Center before Broadway. Like it goes on and on. Dear Evan Hansen and, you know, A Strange Loop. And there's a lot of stuff that's played here before that's it heads Blood up in your... Arena? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, but anyway, um, so you'll have to stay tuned listeners <laughs> for some, uh, DC or Baltimore shows maybe. Um, but in the meantime, let's, let's do, let's treat this as sort of, you know, like a sneak peek at this cool world premiere. I mean, it's national theater news as far as I'm concerned. So how did you, how'd you get the idea to do it? Were you, were you a fan of, you know, five ever since you were a kid or <laughs> why, why, how did you come think to do that? Let's do this right
0: now. I wish I could say I was the genius who came up with the idea to do this adaptation. It was actually, the people at children's theater company in Minneapolis, which is why it's starting there. They had a discussion with universal who own the film and got uh, the stage rights to adapt it. So it was them people at CTC who contacted me and said, Hey, do you want to be involved in this? But the answer to the second part of your question is yes. I mean, I was nine years old when the movie came out. So I don't know if that's the, it's close if that's not the exact target age for that movie, it's close. So, so I remember the movie from when I was a kid, you know, I probably hadn't seen it in 30 years, but some of those songs were still in my head. And of course, you know, Fievel's iconic hat. So I was like, yes, yeah, sign me up. And, uh, and that was how I got involved. It's like, they just sort of reached out to me and asked if I, if I wanted to do the adaptation and I was, I jumped at the chance. So you said you were nine? When the movie came out, yeah, I was nine years old. And where was this? Where'd you grow up? Just real quick. Berkeley, Berkeley, California in the Berkeley, San Francisco Cal- Bay area. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. So you were nine. You were, you had already gone West before Five O went West. It's in the true. Sequel. It's true.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, it started West.
1: Very, very cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, in case, you know, you and I remember it well, um, my wife started singing it the second that I said I was interviewing you, <laughs> but, um, uh, Remind, In case maybe some of our listeners or maybe younger listeners missed it, you know, uh, remind them the basic storyline. You
0: know, I'm not going to make you do it. Don't feel like you got to no, be no, a no, official log log line dropping. I've gotten, but, you know. <laughs> I've gotten good at the capsule summary. So, yeah, An American Tale is the story of the Mauskowitzes, a family of Russian Jewish mice who have to flee their village in Russia because it's attacked by cats who are the Cossacks. And uh, they have to get on a boat and go to America. But on the trip over... Fivel, the son, falls overboard, and they think he's drowned, and so they think he's lost. And in fact, he swims to shore and, and finds himself in 1880s Mouse, New York, and he has to spend the rest of the story sort of navigating that city to find his family again, and on the way meets all of these other colorful mouse characters from, from other you know, immigrant communities and joins their big fight against their nemesis, the cats.
1: Who are some of these other characters? Uh, I I know them from the movie, but yeah, me, some of the know, famous well, ones.
0: Yeah, there's you know there's there's his sort of uh, his 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 sidekick, the artful dodger to his Oliver, I guess. Is sort of is Tony to Pony, the sort of streetwise Italian mouse. <laughs> there's, there's like a, a, a you know a protest revolutionary organizing mouse named Bridget. There's Honest John who runs the mouse equivalent of Tammany Hall, the sort of big political power in the city. There's uh, there's Warren T. Rat, who's sort of a shady, a shady mafioso type character who does some of the underworld dealings. Uh, yeah. Characters like the Henri, a French pigeon who's building a a statue, a famous statue that will one day stand on a little island off the coast of Manhattan. Um, yeah, those are some, those are some of the characters that Fivel and the audience will encounter.
1: I love that you mentioned Oliver and the Artful Dodger because yeah. that, that just, that sparked something else for me because, you know, uh... Disney was doing Oliver and Company sort of sort of like in, you know, the, the 80s was like a rough time for Disney animation before they did, you know, dis, decided to do the idea of musicals with Little Mermaid. And then they were off the races, the Renaissance. But back in the yeah. 80s, um, Don Bluth was sort of was taking was sticking it to him. You know, he, he was just yeah. as good as the arrival of Disney with land before time and all dogs go to heaven, I guess, he, later yeah. Anastasia. But talk about how um, uh, if we detour from the, the stage show for a second, but just talk about how. uh Five O and American Tail kind of kicked off a lot of Don Bluth, like almost like a golden age of a of arrival of Disney that I don't think we've ever really even seen since.
0: No, I, it's you know, it's I'm glad you asked that because it's a part of the story that you know, I, you know, I do interviews about the show and we talk about that what you know the stage version is like and so on. But this is a part, an important part of the story that that, that most of the interviews don't touch on. But yeah, Don Bluth was an animator at Disney and he wanted to do different kinds of stories maybe that were a little darker a little edgier a little um not ed- not even re- i mean they are cartoons for kids they're not like edgy and like you know they're not tarantino but they're like you know just just to go to a little more sort of artsy darker place that isn't quite the disney brand uh, so he sort of broke away and started doing his own thing and yeah american tale was one of his efforts you mentioned land before time the secret of nim was another one from that period he made a laser disk video game that was really popular called dragon's Lair. that sort of as <laughs> it feels as though you're playing a cartoon so yeah he really did create this this sort of you know little fiefdom of his own and it's funny we were just talking about this in rehearsal the other day there's a there's a little throwaway joke in the movie the movie's about mice of course right right uh and there's a scene when they get to the tammany hall uh uh sequence where they meet honest john and when we arrive at that scene in the movie and we've preserved this for the stage show, they're in the middle of an Irish wake and the mouse who's dead on the table that they're sort of commemorating is a mouse named Mickey. (laughs) We were just talking talking in rehearsal the other day about how that must've been Don Bluth, like, you know, needling his old bosses being like, yeah, Mickey Mouse is dead. Now, of course, Mickey Mouse was far from dead and Disney is doing just fine. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's a funny little part of the story that this, this movie among others came out of, um, don bluth's you know striking out on his own wanting to have his own artistic path that is awesome and th- thank
1: you for being able to talk about the animated film history in addition to the broadway stuff because yeah. uh i i think the uh, land before just another side an-, an anecdote um uh land before time was the very first movie i ever saw in the theater and then i guess well, the little mermaid was the second after so i was actually a bluth guy before disney didn't even realize it as a
0: kid but you know <laughs> what i mean yeah
1: <laughs> but um so but very cool. Uh, great tidbit with Mickey on the on the table there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. bringing it back to the show. So like you've described so much, you know, um, visual splendor that I can just imagine from the movie. And now trying to see that on stage, you know, you mentioned his his famous hat and then the backdrops of New York City and like a shipwreck. And like there's just all this stuff. Like how do we visually bring that to, to life? Is it projections?
0: Is it, you know, backdrops? Like, yeah, paint a visual right. picture for me. Yeah, that's another really good question, because obviously in a cartoon, you can put anything on the screen that you can imagine. You just draw it, right? And you have very, very different uh, limitations when you're doing something on stage. So it's also a great challenge and opportunity for the designers, because the magic of theater is, is sort of illusion. It's like the magic of like a magician doing card tricks or something. So no, we're not really using projections, which, which in a show like this almost feel a little bit like cheating but it's more like the feeling of like a circus show that all comes out of a trunk or something and and you can play around a lot with scale where you know a brilliant set designer and set department and props designers and so on um you just build these objects that are you know human objects at enormous size so if everything is consistent that way and your whole environment is built out of you know when bridget uh, stands on a soapbox she's standing literally on a giant box for one bar of soap. You get a sense of uh, of scale. And then costuming is another big part of it where it's a challenge similar to something with the Lion King where you're dealing with characters who are anthropomorphized animals. So you need to get across what animals they are. In this case, mostly mice, but there's cats, there's cockroaches, you know, there's the pigeon. So how do you do that while not concealing the actor's face which they need to express emotion to the audience. Also, the cats, of course, have to be much bigger than the mice. So how do you do that? And we've sort of involved puppetry. So it's basically like taking all of the basic tools of theater, many of which are ancient, right? It's one of our oldest art forms, uh, and figuring out how those can do the equivalent that you can do with just a beautiful drawing in a cartoon
1: wow that sounds really cool and bonus oh. points for for just so easily saying anthropomorphized i don't, I don't even know if i said it right <laughs> <laughs> you, you I, know that that was good <laughs> i reward you ten thousand uh bonus points for that Thank you. um all right cool uh all right well that's the that's the visuals but of course as we have been hinting it it is a musical so okay. let's uh let's uh round it out with that um do I mean, uh, you know, we we remember somewhere somewhere out there and then uh, yes. there are no cats in America. There was all, there's so many we remember from the the movie. But um, do those make it in the show? Is it a mix of new stuff or how does that work?
0: So it's really funny because the movie. And again, I hadn't seen it probably in 30 years when I took this job. So watching it again, one of the first things that struck me was that the movie only has four songs Right. And mentioned the two that people tend to remember somewhere out there in No Cats in America. There's another one called Never Say Never. And there's a, there's a fourth one that people remember even less. So even if we used all four, that's not really enough for a full stage musical. So we knew right off the bat, we were going to have to write six, seven, eight more songs to fill out the score. In the end, I think we used three of the four songs from the movie and wrote a bunch of new ones um, just to, yeah, to, to give it the, the sort of, Frequency of song that you need for like a legit stage musical, but that's been really fun too to get to sort of write songs for these iconic characters to go a little bit deeper into the emotion or into the comedy of what certain moments could give rise to. You know.
1: Now, what was the name of the fourth song that you said that no one even remembers? Is it? There's a, a song. A it's the
0: one. I. 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 I, I <laughs> yes, I sort of let it fall by the wayside because it's the one we didn't use. We, we've kept, like I said, the <laughs> okay. two you mentioned, and we've also kept Never Say Never, which is a song that Henri the Pigeon sings. Right. Uh, there's a song late in the movie called We're a Duo. Yeah. Uh, that it, honestly, I mean, I, I have no way of confirming this. I'd have to ask the people who made the movie. But it feels like one of those songs that was just sitting in somebody's drawer, like a trunk song, you might call it. Trunk song. But it was written for something else. And then they were like, "Oh, we can use that We're a Duo song here," and sort of plugged it in. It doesn't really, it doesn't really have the same yeah. sort of, certainly not, you know, power of something like "Somewhere Out There," the a, you know, a Grammy-winning song that people still know today, or the sort of specificity of "There Are No Cats in America." Um, that people, I could still hum the chorus thirty years later before I watched the movie again. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's the one. That's the gotcha. one. That, That ended up on the chopping block. But but I will say that the number we've replaced it with because we put another song in that spot is my favorite new song that we wrote for the show. And it's a big production number for uh, a chorus of cockroaches. And it's my it's hands down my favorite new song in the show.
1: And what's that one called? You can't say it's your favorite new one without actually
0: like, you know, the title a little bit. Yeah, it's called Set You Free. And set uh, you free. Yeah. And it has it basically it's just a giant song and dance number for uh, an ensemble of cockroaches. I love it. I love it. So
1: it was a fine replacement for the the I trunk, think, the trunk so. song
0: that that's that
1: stowaway trunk song on the immigrant ship. Right. Yeah, uh, a duo can, can sink to the
0: bottom as far as yeah. we're
1: concerned. <laughs> Any yeah. other new ones you want to go to or go into, or, or do you think that's good?
0: Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, like, I like all the new songs, you know, I, I was lucky to work with this great composing team, um, Alan Schmuckler and Michael Mahler. And then the three of us did lyrics. Together and they did the music and um, they're just very smart and funny and uh, and willing to sort of try things and throw stuff out. It's exactly what you want in collaborators and so they were able to like write in styles that feel like they evoke the different you know groups that that uh, are in New York at the time. So yeah, we've got an opening number where the Maskowitzes are having a, a Hanukkah party in there. In their village in Russia. And so, you know, you've got this sort of Hanukkah song feel to it. And then when we're at, you know, uh, the Tammany Hall equivalent for the mice, uh, there's kind of an Irish jig type song uh, where they, you know, they imagine a world where they don't have to deal with cats at all. So there's this great kind of variety of musical styles, this sort of tapestry that mirrors um, the different facets of New York at the time. Um, yeah, so it's cool. It's a good score. I like it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And is any of the, you know, in terms of the score, is any of the music, does it echo, what was it, James Horner in the original one, I think?
0: It's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's So there's incidental music in the music, yeah, by James Horner. Uh, yes, I'd actually say yes, because, okay. you know, obviously it's original stuff that Alan and Mike wrote, but tonally, since we mirror a lot of the scenes, you know, it's not, we don't, we stick close to the, structure of the movie with some departures and expansions and so on. So we end up in a lot of the same kinds of scenes with a lot of the same vibe. And so, you know, when we first meet Warren T. Ratt, who's sort of the villain, you know, in the the movie, the underscoring in that scene is kind of a jazzy walking bass. but there isn't really a big, you know, villain, meet the villain number for Warren in the movie. So we wrote one and it has the same kind of vibe as like, the incidental music from the scene where we meet him. So so that kind of thing. Yeah. So I guess the answer is sort of yes.
1: Sort of in, in spirit, tonally. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: I'm Bradley Trainer. And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out
1: Awesome. Well, I have plenty to work with about, you know, about An American Tale, the musical. Um, well, before you before you go, like I always whenever I have someone on, I love to sort of hear like your journey. So you, you've already so- sort of already hinted at it that you grew up in, in Berkeley and saw yeah. Fievel at age nine. <laughs> but, but, you know, what, what else, you know, what else is sort of your origin story of, you know, how, how you got into, you know, either musical theater or, you know, like what kind of yeah. stuff did you dig when you
0: were growing up watching? It's a good question. When I was a kid, I, w- I, I was a big nerd- nerd for like fantasy and sci-fi novels um Good. i was one of those kids who would go to like the fantasy sci-fi bookstores around the bay area and like read all that stuff nice um the dark is rising and pierce anthony and you know the the wheel of time and all that which is now a tv series on amazon but it was an obscure thing only nerds knew about in the late 80s and early 90s <laughs> um but uh So I thought I wanted to write fantasy novels because it's what I was reading, but I was interested in writing generally from a, from a pretty young age. And then I got into theater later, maybe when I was a senior in high school and then more in college, uh, started doing theater and trying to write plays, um, and, uh, be involved in theater in various ways. And so by the time I moved to New York, I, I was pretty locked in on like, I'm going to try to be like a New York playwright. And I went to grad school at NYU for it and started, uh having some of my early productions. So, so that was the, the path, was just becoming a working playwright. And then musicals happened semi-accidentally. I have a friend uh, named Gabby Alter, who I grew up with in Berkeley and who writes music. And he also went to NYU for grad school. He did the musical theater writing program. And we graduated around the same time and we were buddies. So we were hanging out anyway in New York. And we were like, well, we have complementary skills, let's write a musical together. So we did, and that became my first musical. It was a satire about reality television called Nobody Loves You. Um, and so we did that show in San Diego and then we did it off Broadway. And that kind of began um, this parallel part of my career to my playwriting, which was doing book writing for musicals. And, you know, so I did another one. I did uh, an adaptation of The Fortress of Solitude, which is a big Jonathan Lethem novel. Um, with uh, director Daniel Auken and a composer named Michael Friedman. And then The Band's Visit, which you mentioned at the top, um, which is the one that's certainly best known from from the ones I've done, uh, happened after that. So by that point, when I was like having a third musical and then like starting to win awards for it, I could no longer deny that it was like a a co-equal facet of my artistic life, even though it was just in my head, it was just this like, other sort of sideline thing I was doing because it was fun, because I liked musicals, because it's a little bit more collaborative and less lonely than playwriting. Um so that <laughs> was kind of how all that happened. And presumably it was that work that led to um Children's Theatre Company reaching out to me about American Tale. Um but the the and then I also, you know, uh, as a lot of playwrights do these days, because it's, you know, A, to pay the bills and B, um, because you can do really good work there these days, I also work in television some so I think it's a pretty common story for playwrights where that's the first thing you're doing, but then there are all these other forms that require people who can write, you know, scenes, who can do dramatic storytelling. So you end up writing TV, you end up writing musicals, you end up writing screenplays. So so it's kind of a, a gradual expansion from that, that first impulse, which was like, I'm going to write some plays.
1: Well, your versatility of mediums is impressive. I mean, not many people can write a Tony-winning Broadway musical, but then turn around and write, you know, TV, Boardwalk Empire, or Men of a Certain Age. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that takes
0: some prize, but thank some nimble you. skill. <laughs> thank you. I'll take it
1: uh real quick uh you mentioned bands visit but i'd love to do one, at least one more deep dive question into sure. that because it, you know at this point i mean like, like you're saying that's sort of really really put you on, on the map and cemented like okay i guess i'm doing musicals now <laughs> um sure. how did you come i mean because it was a movie first like an israeli yeah. film 2007 israeli film but how did you and yeah. david yeah is it yazbek is that how
0: you say it yazbek. yeah that's right
1: Did you see the movie first or did David see it or did someone bring it to both of you guys? Like, how did you decide, like, we're going to do this story about this band of musician bringing this community?
0: uh, It was, it was option three that you said. (laughs) Door number three. Uh, Yeah, there was uh, there is, he still exists. There is a commercial theater producer uh, named Oren Wolf um, who saw the movie when it ran at some festival in New York city, probably in yeah, 2007 or 2008. After it premiered in Israel, and he watched it and immediately sensed that it would make a good stage musical. And so that began sort of a journey for him for Oren, of tracking down the filmmaker, convincing him to give him the rights. It's funny because Aron Kohler, in the Israeli filmmaker, um I've talked to him about this since, And what he always says is he said no, like the first few times. he didn't grant the rights. and he because he didn't really know anything about musicals. so he he would he said something like, you know, I thought it was a bad idea because the only musical I know is cats. And I thought, so what? He's going to dress them as cats? It don't make sense. But there eventually... are no
1: there are no cats
0: in the band's it's visit. Band <laughs> sure. So eventually Oren convinced him and he turned over the rights. And and so it was Oren who hired me and, and David Yazbek um to adapt it. And so I knew of the movie, I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen it. So after I came in for my first meeting. Um, they sort of handed me a DVD and said, well, you know, give this a watch and see what you think. And if you think you could adapt it and if you think you'd be a good fit. Uh, So that was how I got brought on board. I was sort of a hired hand, which is how sometimes things are generated, you know, by you and out of, you know, a, a crazy idea you have on your own. But even when you're a hired hand, the only way to do it is to find your own way in to kind of figure out where inside yourself, it allows you to, this property, this thing you're adapting, whatever it is, allows you to to say something you actually do really want to say and that is personal to you. Otherwise, it ends up just being like, you know, kind of this mercenary thing you're doing for hire. You have to figure out how to make it personal. Um, but with some with stuff like Fans Visit and American Tale, which have such um, sort of deep themes that resonate with me in all kinds of ways, like my personal identity, my family history, and then also just these, you know, humanistic messages that like I respond to. Uh, it's not, the, it's not so hard to find my way in. Absolutely.
1: Uh, final seconds, Tony Knight. I mean, I'd be remiss <laughs> if I don't at least re- get a, rem- a memory because gosh, Bands vi- bands Visit won, I think 10, including yeah. the top top prize, best musical. You yourself, you know, got to go up for best book of a musical, but you know, memories of, of that hear- hearing, not only your name called, but like over and over and over, I got to say 10 overs. <laughs> to, yeah. what, what was
0: that? That must've been surreal. It was completely surreal. Um initially we I did not expect and we did not expect uh it to go so overwhelmingly well. We knew we were gonna do okay. There were a few people from our show who were nominated who it kind of felt like a lock. You know, it was I think the fourth time Yazbek had been nominated and it sort of felt like he was due. So we're like, okay, Yazbek's going to win. And our leading lady, Katrina Lenk, had a lot of momentum and it felt like she was going to win. And, and we thought that was a good chance we could win Best Musical. But, you know, so that's three. You know, maybe, maybe we're like, okay, so maybe we'll get four or five. We did not expect ten. And with me in particular, because I was up against Tina Fey for Mean Girls, who right. I would re- I mean, she's a genius. I, I'm a huge fan of hers. The smart money was on uh, her for the Best Book Award and, you know, some of the other whatever awards felt uh you know less clear and um but my award was really early in the evening so what happened was I think we'd won one and then I was the second person from our show whose nomination came up and when I won it was totally surreal for me like it was an out-of-body experience I had practiced this speech but I didn't think I was going to have to use it and I remember getting up on the stage at Radio City Music Hall and looking at it, this audience of thousands of people many of them quite famous and my mind just being a complete blank for a terrifying second. And then the speech came back and I launched into it. But there was this moment where I was like, I literally had forgotten what I had planned to say. Um, (laughs) And and then I went backstage because they immediately usher you backstage to do a series of interviews. And I, I was sort of like, oh, if I won, That probably means we're going to do very well because I seem like one of the least likely people from our show to win. And sure enough, as you're going down the hallways and doing these interviews, they have TV monitors up um, so you can still see the ceremony. And I remember going into this back hall and then I saw, you know, Ariel Stashel, who won Best Supporting Actor, basically, Best Featured Actor, it's called, uh, shortly after me. So I saw Ariel up there giving a speech. And then I rounded another corner and got to some more interviews and I saw another monitor and I saw Tyler Michelow our lighting designer up there giving a speech. So there was this like this real time snowball feeling of like, Oh, this is one of those nights. So I, so then I remember thinking, just, this is incredible. And like, remember all of this. Cause this, I mean, you know, you could have other successes. You're going to have the ups and downs of a career. I could have other things that do well, but I remember thinking this a night like this is probably never going to happen again. In my life, so I it was it was great. It was like a really, really overwhelming um, and kind of crazy experience. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, and, and like, like you said, knocking off some titans to to do it, but <laughs> but you know, in the you know, and if now that I think about it, though, voters probably. They probably wanted to reward. Uh, well, never mind. I, well, I was going to say they wanted to do, reward the original work over. It's God. Not. Yeah, were Frozen all, were. Mean Girls and SpongeBob, but Band's Visit was a movie. It was. It was not, <laughs> they
0: were all adaptations. Ours was yeah. adapted from the obscure, most obscure source material. But they were. They go. were adaptations. Yeah.
1: There you go. It, it's the adaptation um, best musical year. Uh, but no, man, you're in good company. I mean, seriously, like yeah. if when we look back at it, Fun Home, Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, The Band's Visit in Hadestown, like that's a five year run, baby. That's
0: incredible. It's a good um, run. Yeah, it's good company.
1: Awesome. Well, you've been good company, so I, pre- I appreciate well, you, you joining us. Anything else uh, you want to say before we run about uh, American Tale? I don't think
0: so. We, uh, if you, if any of your listeners happen to be in Minneapolis in the next couple <laughs> of months, we run from April twenty ninth until June eighteenth. I think, and we might extend, but at least until mid June. So yeah, come check us out if you're in the area.
1: Yes. All the best. We wish you success. So much success that you know it allows you to tour the country and come our way. So we appreciate
0: well, it. I certainly hope so.